Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. All right, welcome investors. Today we have a great guest. We have Mr. Ray Klein, entrepreneur, investor extraordinaire. A little background on Ray. Ray Klein is an entrepreneur, mentor, crisis manager, and project leader. Ray co-founded American Life Inc., a Seattle, Washington real estate investment company in 1996. During his tenure from 1996 to 2012, he grew total funds under management to approximately 1 billion US dollars, primarily from Asian investors. During 2012 to 2014, he led Rainbow Clean Energy GK, a developer of mega solar power generation projects in Japan. In 2015 to 2016, he restructured and then sold a 1.5 million US dollar retail and gift store business that was previously acquired as part of the Okabe purchase. In 2009, he led a local private investor group in the acquisition of the Okabe Hotel Group, a 500-room resort chain in Japan, and served as its president until the company was sold in late 2010. In 96, Ray also founded Tech Invest, a strategic consulting firm that focused on localizing numerous U.S. technology companies to the Japanese market. Most notable was NetRains Japan, which was a joint venture with Nielsen Media Research and Transcosmos. Ray has previously served on the board of Hope International Development Agency, which extends help to Asia's neglected poor. He holds BS and MS degrees in computer science. Ray is bilingual in English and Japanese and has lived in Tokyo since 1990. So let's give a warm welcome to Mr. Ray Klein. Let's go. Hey, Ray, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, thanks for joining us today. How are you? All right. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. A little cold today, but otherwise not so bad. Yeah, it's a little chilly. So, Ray, so um, before we jump in, can you tell us um, a little bit about your childhood? Where, where are you from? <laughs> I'm from New York. New York. Town. Yeah, White Plains, New York. Suburbs okay. of New York City. White Plains, White Plains. Okay, and um, big family? No, small family. Uh, one brother, one sister. I'm by far the youngest. Actually, half brother, half sister, but um, consider ourselves one family. Okay. And how about your um, your upbringing? Were your parents pretty pretty strict? Not really. I was by far the youngest. My parents were much older and they had my brother and sister were teenagers when I was born. So they just, they were exhausted by the time I grew up and I had an easy time. So they just left you to your own vices, huh? Pretty much. <laughs> I was easy. 
and they were easy on me. Okay, yeah, better than me on my parents. I think I was pretty <laughs> pretty tough for them. And were, were either of your parents um, predisposed to entrepreneurship? Um, my grandfather was, and my mother always told me about his entrepreneurship. And uh, my father was a salaried guy all his life, and he, he was forced into entrepreneurship by an early retirement uh, from his company. And so, so I got to see a little bit of entrepreneurship growing up and hear about it from my mother. Okay. Talking about her father primarily. And how did he, um, did he make a good go at it after he retired? He my father, yeah, he did all right. He, he was a sales guy during his career and he made friends everywhere he went so he was all he was still able to be reasonably successful he was still he was still would do a deal a year up until he died at age 90. oh wow yeah oh, that's pretty good so, not big deals but you know even you know he'd always be doing something okay yeah okay so um so you arrived in Japan in um, 1990, correct? Yes, yeah. So what, what were you doing um, prior to that professionally? I Prior to that, I was a, what was I? I was software engineer in the US and I didn't really like it. And I wasn't that good at it. So I, I studied Japanese continuing ed and then figured, all right, here's another angle into something new. So I'll head to Japan. Okay. And, so and where'd you, that. I'm sorry. And so you said, did you study, um, where'd you study at in the U.S.? I studied in Michigan where I was living at the time. I was with my wife, then okay. girlfriend, short, then wife. <laughs> okay. All right. So yeah, that goes into, um, and so you arrived in Japan. What did you do then? Once you so you you just decided pretty much just okay, I'm going to try out Japan. Yeah, it was the bubble. It was 1990. I was young. I believed the stuff about Japan is different. It's easy to make money. So we came over here. We were young. We figured it'd be so easy, and it wasn't. So when you got to Japan, what were you doing? Did you originally, did you initially start? Um... I didn't have anything. I, I had nothing lined up. So I was looking, I looked for work and I got, I finally found something um, at a company called Otsuka Shokai. I really wanted to learn Japanese, learn to speak the language. So I, I was looking for a Japanese company where I'd, I'd sink or swim on my language. So uh, I was the first foreigner ever hired by Otsuka Shokai. Oh, wow, very cool. So yeah, I mean, you must have been pretty impressive if you were the first foreigner they hired, huh? I guess, maybe I'm the last too. But it was a <laughs> learning experience for both of us. But you know, it's, it's, it, was, it was good. It's always good to be different. I, I didn't want to be one of many, but um, yeah, it was a good learning experience. I made some relationships there. People there are still friends today. My old boss is still a good friend today. 
And what kind of experience was it um, assimilated into the Japanese workforce? I mean, it clearly is a lot different from U.S. life work style, correct? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, it was at the time it was difficult because there was, I wasn't going to be Japanese, um, never going to be as good a Japanese as a Japanese. So I had to figure out what I could do differently. And I was mostly a, a bridge to the rest of the world. And, and, and working in that company was a, a, a lot of, it's mostly learning, learning about Japanese business and meeting people. And uh, building a network for the future. At the same time, I was trying to improve my Japanese. Yeah, and what exactly did the company do? What were they, um, what kind of work were they involved in? It's a big computer sales company. So they're, they're big, uh, uh, mostly it's a sales company. Okay. But they're one of the largest and uh, they recognized that the trends in computer industry were coming out of the US. So they wanted somebody who could make direct relationships with the U.S. And, and bring them information a little faster because they're uh, second tier company. They're not NEC, they're not uh, Toshiba, but they sell those products. And so they, they saw a need to have more direct information directly with U.S. companies. And so I was the, the window for them. Okay. And so, and how was your how was your wife adapting to Japan? Was she doing pretty good at adapting as well? Was she liking it? Well, she's Japanese, so she had to readjust. Okay. Um, to Japan, she got used to American ways, but yeah, she readjusted, and uh, yeah, she likes living here because it's it's comfortable to speak in her native language. So yeah, it was okay. All right, and so you're at that company up until was it? 19, when were you, 1996? That was till 92, three? 92, okay. Yeah, it's about two and a half years. And you ended up, you left that company? I left that company and I went to work for a US consulting company, a boutique consulting company. Um, and I was there for a couple of years and I hated that too. And my wife said, you know, it's really not them, it's it's you. <laughs> so so you, you just can't work for anybody. So you need to start your own company. So she was very supportive in that regard. And so that's that's what I did. I was kind of a um I became an entrepreneur because I couldn't do anything else. Okay. And so and that was um so you started, um, was the first company you started American Life? I, I, the first company was, was a company called Tech Invest, consulting vehicle. I just, I did tech consulting. It was about around the same time as American Life, both in 96. Okay, and what kind of consulting did you do with, um, with that one? A lot of the same kind of thing, mostly sales-oriented stuff for IT companies coming to Japan. So software company, technology companies that wanted to set up ventures in Japan or <clears throat> do kind of, some kind of sales activities in Japan. And how was how was your stint with that company? Did you have pretty much success with it? Was it pretty pretty viable? 
Yeah, it was good. I mean, it was really me. Um, I had a secretary and I had a couple people working with me at the, from, uh, from time to time. But I was able to set up a few good ventures and do some good deals. Um, we set up a company called Net Ratings, Net Ratings Japan. So I got a chance to, because of the, my virtue of being in Japan, this was the, this was the middle of the venture capital boom in the U.S. in the 90s. I got an um, opportunity to get into a few early stage companies in the U.S. And so I would, my, my little angel investment would be welcomed because I could bring the Japan angle. So we had a few good deals. There was a, the, the most notable one is a company called Net Ratings, which was then bought by Nielsen, the, the, the TV ratings folks. And uh, that company did well in the US and we set up a joint venture here in Japan and then sold the Japan venture back to corporate. And ultimately they went public in the US and they sold themselves to a big Dutch publishing company called VNU. Um, so that was a good deal. Okay, very cool. Yeah, it was fun. All right, so then you did that um, around the same time, and then you eventually started American Life? Yeah, we started that in 96. That's right. Okay, and, and, and I understand that was based in Seattle. So how did, um, how did the Seattle angle come about? Well, none of this was really very strategic. When, when we were young, um, I always knew I wanted to invest in real estate and I knew I didn't want to invest in passively in other deals. I wanted to hold title and manage it myself. And so we were looking for property and we were actually, my wife and I would just make trips and we would look individually specifically for property. But we, we, we came across an attorney in the area who was doing similar types of deals. So he talked us out of buying the property we were going to buy and investing with him. And so eventually we bought property together and we formed American Life together. So what, what kind of property was the first property that you, you bought together with this? Industrial mm -hmm. property in the south of Seattle. So we always liked um, industrial as opposed to residential because it's new tenants and businesses mm -hmm. and the deal's the deal. When you're dealing with somebody's home, it's always more personal. It's, you know, it's harder to throw somebody out of their house. You don't want to, it's harder to do anyway. Mm -hmm. So commercial was always a draw and we saw this as a growth area in Seattle. Okay. And, um, what kind of deal? How many how many um, tenants were in this property? Was it just a a single tenant? Well, the first one was the first one was just a couple of tenants. I don't remember. It's like uh, I think it's three or four tenants. Okay. And how long did you hold that property before um, exiting? We still have it. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So it must be a pretty, uh, must be pretty good cash flow if you're still holding it after 20, 20 something odd years. It was really good cash flow until January this year. Now it's zero. Because mm. of COVID, <laughs> exactly, exactly right. 
Is, is it vacant yeah, now yeah, or are they just, um, the company's not making any money or are they, is it vacant now? Uh, it's a combination. A couple spaces are vacant. The few people who are there are not paying. Okay. All right. So eventually with American Life, I mean, you grew assets under manage, management to somewhere around a billion U.S. dollars. Yeah. So we we got to the point where we raised, after a while, we started raising money from this EB-5 program, which, which is uh, an investor green card. And I would mostly shop that in China. So we, we had a mark, we developed an early market here in Japan by virtue of my being here. Uh, but the big market was in China. And in between 2010, 11, 12, we raised about 400 million out of China just in those three years. And then at the end of 2012, I sold my interest in the company. Okay, so EV5, is that a Chinese program or a Japanese program? It's a US program. It's an investor green card, but it's only, it's marketed outside of the US. It's for people who want to get permanent US residents in a passive way. Okay, it's, so it's, it's a controversial program because it's seen as selling a green card, which it kind of is. Um, it's an investment; it has to be an at-risk investment. But the investment is managed by a promoter like ours, and the investor gets the right to live in the U.S. Okay, so that. I guess whoever is the beneficiary of this green card, that, that wasn't you then, it was someone else on it with you? Because you're a well, US the, citizen. The customer, right, the customer invests to get a green card for himself and his family. Oh, I see, I see, okay. So then they invest in the, in the US properties through this visa program, 85 program. Right. Okay, okay. Right. got it, got it. Okay, so I mean, had you been to China before doing this program? Had, did you already have um, contacts or experience in China, or is this something all new to you? No, it was new. I had to figure it out. Yeah, so that's what was, that was my next question. So, how did you go about marketing your program and finding investors in China? And were you in Hong Kong or Beijing or all over the big cities? Where were you? Where were you I marketing? traveled all over the all the big cities, all, all over the east coast of China. Um, it's mostly through migration agents. So it, what, what happens is it's interesting. In, in countries like most Asian countries, except for Japan, there are migration agencies. And this is a, this is a professional business to help people migrate to some typically the Western countries. So the customers are typically uh, Asian and Southeast Asian countries and the target destinations are the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand. All of the English speaking countries have an investment program where you can invest money and get a permanent residence card. Okay. And we're just one more product that these companies, these migration agencies would sell. All right, and did you just pay them a percentage of the proceeds or you pay them a flat fee? How do, how do they get paid? Yeah, they get paid a percentage of proceeds. They get paid a uh, percentage of the investment money. 
Okay, got it. Yeah, I guess there was no shortage of um, Chinese wanting to invest in the in the U.S. and live in the U.S. and get their kids going to schools in the U.S. So, I mean, was it pretty easy finding investors in China, or was that challenging? It's never easy. Um, there's a lot of demand, and it's a huge market, but there's also a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. So, so standing out and and selling the merits of of our program over others was was never easy. Okay, so yeah, four hundred million in um, China. Did you were you raising a lot more in Japan or more than that in Japan? Oh no, China was by far the biggest market. I spent a lot of time there those three years. Okay, at least it was a closer flight than than from the U.S. Most yeah, of my competition would fly from the U.S. I would just fly from Japan. Okay, so yeah, you can be there more often and get a lot more done. And were you doing yeah. any um, raising in the U.S. as well, or pretty much just Asia for your for your own project? Just Asia, just Asia, really. Um, the EB five program was during those years. It was just uh, it was just there's just huge demand. And that program is still operating today. Is, that, is it still pretty, um, pretty much successful program? It's kind of slowed. Um, China was the big market, and it it's got it was too successful. So there there's now a long waiting list for any Chinese investor. So very few are investing now because the waiting list is more than ten years to get a visa. So it's very hard oh, to wow. make life plans that are 10 years down the road um and the rules the, the the rules are implemented differently now um and the investment amount has gone up in the last year so program slowed a lot and there's a lot of um resentment in the u.s toward the program now uh because it's seen as rich people buying a green card mm, yeah all right, and, and when you when you were finding investors, did you already have an asset um, in mind or under contract, or were you pretty much did it work pretty much like a fund? You would just you would raise money and then find the project afterwards. No, we'd have to do the project first. Uh, nobody would nobody would be willing to invest. One of the things we learned was nobody was willing to invest in a blind pool. Um, it had to be a very specific project and well-defined and then people would consider the merits of that project so we we put a project under contract develop plans for it and then and uh have a, a private placement memorandum and then based on that we would do marketing okay all right got it yeah and that in a nutshell that sounds simple enough but I'm sure you know much better than I. Just even just finding an asset or project that fits the parameters that makes a deal worth doing is more than half the job, right? It's hard. It's hard finding a good deal. It's hard putting it together. So we were early in the game, so we started early, and as competition grew, we had to have more compelling projects. And what happened over time is is more more and more companies built hotels because that was. Um, a very recognizable product from the customer's point of view. So if, if I'm a, a Chinese investor sitting in a conference room in, in Beijing looking at somebody's PowerPoint and I see a picture of a warehouse, it's, 
it could be anywhere. It's really not, it's hard to understand, but if I see a picture, it's a Marriott hotel. I know what Marriott hotel is. I have some familiarity with that brand. It's, it's an easier choice for the investor to make. Okay. And so for every, let me see, how long would you say, or should I say, how many deals would you look at on average before finding one that makes sense to you and your investors? Oh, non always looking at deals. It's putting them together, constantly looking at deals. It's a never ending process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you know, real estate is very slow moving. You're constantly talking. Maybe you've targeted something you want to buy, but the negotiation could happen takes place over years. So yeah. uh, it's a lot of long, long-term slow motion discussions that are always taking place. Okay, and, and then actually once you find a deal, I mean, everyone knows good deals are hard to come by. So of course you always have competition as well. So how, how, how much of getting your deal offer accepted is, is skill versus luck? It really, what it boiled down to in the end was just the commission. You had to, uh, <laughs> the agent would simply sell the product with the largest commission. Okay, so, I mean, did you pretty much just try to put the highest bid in for the property or for the asset? No, we would try to make it compelling. I mean, we wanted to, to make it a decent project, but we'd constantly have to add, add commissions onto it to make it saleable. Um, if you didn't offer a healthy commission, the agents wouldn't deal with it. Okay, okay. So you didn't necessarily have to increase the offer price. You can just offer him a, a larger commission? Correct. Okay. Yeah, that's actually, okay. All right, so let's talk about due diligence. So once you get a property under contract, how crucial would you say due diligence is to the success of a deal? Mm, I mean, in general terms, I mean, it's very important, right? I mean, yeah. everyone, you have to do, you have to perform your due diligence on a project. And have, do you always do your own due diligence or have you ever contracted um, third parties to handle due diligence for projects? No, I mean, we do it ourselves. I, that's, that's, that's the level of, of detail where if you're taking somebody else's money, in my 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 opinion, I, I I wouldn't farm out due diligence to anybody personally. Okay. That's part of what I am as an entrepreneur. I don't I don't I, I trust my own judgment the best when it comes to whether the deal is compelling or not. And so when you're starting to look at um assets that you don't necessarily have a lot of experience with, do you just take it under your take it on yourself to to learn to learn that asset? and learn the ins and outs of that? Yes, that's right. I mean, it was the same thing basically for anything, whether it's in the US or Japan. We went through a similar process here in Japan when we developed solar. Um, we, um, I had syndicated, while, while I was operating American Life, we had a chance to buy some hotels out of bankruptcy in 2009 and um, we didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about a hotel in Japan, but we did our own due diligence. We probably didn't do as good a job as we could have, 
<clears throat> but had the confidence that we'd figure it out, um, which we did. And um, the same thing came through. That was a bulk sale. So we bought a hotel and it came with a lot of rural land um, with it. It was a bankruptcy. So they bulk, they threw a lot of assets into the package. When, after we had sold the hotels and a few years had passed, um, Japan passed a feed-in tariff to encourage the development of uh, solar power. And so we looked down our list of land and said, hey, we got this land, maybe we can build solar assets on it. And I knew nothing about that, zero experience in that. So I spent a couple of months just talking to everybody I could and see if I could just be, be a landlord, find somebody to rent the land and build some solar on it for me. But in my discussions, I very quickly realized that while I knew I didn't know anything, I also had the feeling that none of my counterparties did. So it's like, all right, I, I can learn this. We'll do it ourselves. Okay, and this-, and this um... As a long answer to your question, yes, I'll figure it out. Okay. And that, that hotel, that, uh, that first hotel that you bought out of the bankruptcy, was that the um, Okabe Hotel Group deal? Yes, that's right. Okay. So let's talk about that a little. Um, so getting that out of bankruptcy, how does that work? So you, I mean, I guess you you notify whatever bank that's holding, holding it that you want to acquire. Do you have to um, line up um, a lender for financing that? Well, this is another, again, it's a unique deal. Um, it was in a period of crisis. Is, uh, so that's why, I mean, bankruptcies take place when, when, when everyone has a problem. So this was it, right after the, the great financial crisis or the, the global financial crisis or what they call the Lehman crisis here in Japan. And these hotels had gone bankrupt in, they were in receivership for a long time. I, I guess in the earlier 2000s or they had, um, they were bankrupt and it was being administered by an attorney. And around 2007, eight, I think, they were in discussions with some US banks and the US banks were going to finance different promoters to, to buy these things out of bankruptcy. And, and what happened was those banks themselves went bankrupt in the, in the great financial crisis. So the large, some of the large US banks had branches here and they just vanished. So that's the only reason it came to me. Nobody comes to me first. <laughs> so I'm just some guy with an office in, in Ebisu. But I, I, I came across the opportunity and because there was no bank financing, I, I put together a syndication of about uh, of investment from from a group of investors locally, and so we paid cash. Okay. All right. So you led that um, syndication, and you guys sold that one for a year later or so. Yeah, we were planning to hold it longer, but found that the hotel asset was just much more than we had bargained for, and we got a decent offer um, about a year later. So we, we did, we tried to hire the buyer just to be an asset manager for us. We wanted them to just operate the property. 
but they insisted on buying it. They, they, they were in such a rapid growth phase. They didn't have the, the time or the bandwidth to deal with signing an operating agreement. They said, we just want to buy it. If we were to do the deal today, we probably could do the, they're now in the process of doing operating deals, but we sold it to them. We got a decent profit. So it all worked out. Okay, and I'm not sure if I missed this. So were you were you shopping the deal or did this offer just come? Was this just out of the blue? Well, we were looking specifically at opportunities. There weren't many potential buyers. We knew of this one. And so we went to them and they were very eager to buy. Okay. And so what kind of returns did um, you and your investors see for, for that venture? We did okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, exact figures, just, uh, just if you were going to talk about percentages of return or why, but you guys did pretty good. Yeah, we did okay. That's we, how you, you, pretty much everyone was happy and said, if you got another one like it, let me know. Okay. And um, so that land, you still, they just bought the hotel, but you're still, you're still holding the land? We held the land. Um, we've disposed, actually, we just disposed of most of it this year, finally. Um, okay. So, yeah, we've um, disposed of the hotel in 2010. And then the solar development started in 2013. And just little by little, as opportunistically, would would sell these things over time. And we're, we're, we're pretty much done as of this year. All right, excellent. So Ray, what, what, are you, what would you say would be your, in your 30 plus years career now, what would you think, or what would you say would be your most, would have been your most challenging deal that you've, um, you've had to lead? That's interesting. What's the most challenging? They've all been challenging in different ways. Um, The hotel deal was very challenging. I was, I was, it was a very exciting time because I was leading a large company, a larger operation than I had ever dealt with before. So um, we had, it was a $40 million business in, in its turnover and we had several hundred employees and I was thrust into being the president of this company. So it was, was more than I had signed up for. But uh, it was um, it was an exciting time, but I was I did feel in over my head quite a number of times. But I wouldn't give up the experience. Um, I guess the next more challenging experience is was exiting American Life. That's always been a challenge, working through the partnership and exiting um, from partners through very complex holding arrangements. That was. That was also a big challenge. Um, so yeah, there's there's been no one largest challenge, but every new one is something I don't know how to do until I do it. And I think that's probably what separates you from a lot of people because most people would never even venture to do anything. Oh, I don't know how to do that, so I'm just not going to even try. They wouldn't even think about doing that. Well, this. Entrepreneurship is a it's it's a way of life and it's an attitude more than you know than than a, a skill set. So I think the 
if you talk to other entrepreneurs, they probably have a similar attitude. They always want to do something new and um, push on untested territory. Yeah, definitely. So, and just to um, back up to this Okabe deal again. So, you this was this was the first hotel deal you'd ever done, correct? Yes. So, um, how difficult was it to um, raise money from investors with you just being new to this? this type of industry. I mean, that had to be a hard sell as well, correct? Well, that was easier because it was through a bunch of friends. So <laughs> okay. it, was really, it was actually the, the the fundraise was the easy part there. It was the implementation that was hard. <laughs> okay, wow. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I would think that your friends would be like, great, you've never done this before. You, yeah. was it, did they even ask you, were you sure you can do it? Or you, was just, you just had that much confidence that they had the belief in you that, yeah, Ray can pull it off? Yeah, I mean, nobody, we explained the risks. It's like, okay, these are the risks. This is the downside. I think we got it covered. Um, it was just full disclosure. I mean, it, and, and, and there was a lot of acceptance for it. I mean, this is the way, one of the things I learned um, from, from one of the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who I learned a great deal from is don't overthink anything. Just the, be, the the first form of due diligence was always just try and sell it. So I liked the deal. And so I just tried to sell it. And I found a lot of acceptance with it. There have been plenty of deals where I thought it was a good deal. And it's like, I just try and sell it. It's like, ah, I get no, you get no reception. So it's like, all right, I thought it was a good deal, but there was no reception from investors. That's my due diligence. Just try and sell it. So this one sold. So I, I ran with it. Okay. And speaking of speaking of selling and your investors, how, how long did it take? I mean, at this point, I think you have a pretty deep pool of investors that you can um, draw from when you have projects you want to do, but how, how long did it take you to build it and what kind of process was it in getting a reputation that you were a guy who was doing deals and raising capital and someone to invest with? How, how did that process work with you? It takes it forever. Nobody, even today, there's very few people who would say, okay, here's, well, there's a few, but not many who'd say, okay, here's a bunch of money, do whatever you want with it. It's always a question of, I like to have a project ready and target it to the investor. So I, 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 I know investors and I know their parameters and their likes and dislikes and try to bring them something that will appeal to them without wasting time. Okay, yeah, that's another thing that I've learned in my short time raising capital up to now is, yeah, goal alignment. So I guess, you know, a lot of investors have a taste for different types of investment, right? So like you said, you want to bring them something that that meets their needs or suits their taste. Right, right. All right, so, Ray, you've done... So one more thing before we go into lightning round, I want to talk about... Uh, I want to dig a little bit deeper into... So the energy fund you had, I guess it was called the Rainbow Clean Energy GK? Yeah, yeah, that's that was just the, those were the solar projects we developed. Okay. And how many different, um, so during that, during that couple of year period you were doing that, how many different projects? We did, did three on? megawatt, one megawatt projects. Okay, three of them. And all of those went pretty well as, as well? Yeah. Um, we... 
I'd never done it before. So I wanted to do one from start to finish. So we, we built one of them out from start to finish. And that was cool. So I can say I did it. We did the interconnect and everything. And then two other ones, we just did the um, development. And then we sold the licenses to somebody else to be developed. We got a good price for them. And it was just a lot less work. So we just sold them. And, 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 and was that pretty much um, your business plan for that? Is that pretty much how your business plan went to like just get them built, develop, and then sell the licenses? Yeah, there, was no, there was no business plan. This was just an opportunity. Um, we, at the time, this law was passed. Experienced players from around the world came here to look for land to, to develop solar projects. And you know, the key, there are a lot of factors you look at in the land. How far is it from an interconnect? How flat is the land? How many civil works? What's the lighting on it? What's the, the shading on it? So designing a good project and, and building it cheaply are the key factors. But it was fundamentally an artifice. So there's no real value creation except the artifice of law. The law says, even though the price of electricity is 25 yen per kilowatt hour at retail or less at wholesale, the government set an artificially high price by mandate. So um, to the extent that that agreement gets honored, these things have value. But um, there's no inherent value in the project. So we, if we could get more financing, we probably would have built more of these. But as it was, uh, this, this law was really, we could see this law was designed for large players. And it, it happened to encompass small players like us. So we made a decision to get in and out quickly because we knew this wasn't meant to support us. Okay. And buy, buying land here in Japan versus the U.S., um, which do you think has more upside as far as financing and return on investment when you're exiting as far as, as far as a land play? Well, as far as a land play, I mean, the U.S. has a growing population and Japan has a shrinking population. So I'm, I'm definitely bearish on Japanese land per se. Um, Japanese real estate personally is only appealing to the extent you're in one of the major metropolitan centers. Uh, the U.S. is still a destination and is still a growth market. So I think it's still um, in broad terms, a more desirable place for future growth. Okay. Yeah. And there's definitely a lot more land than in Japan, right? A lot more land. Yeah. All right. Very good. We've covered some excellent, excellent stuff here. So why don't we jump into a lightning round now? Okay. I'm not sure I know what that means, but okay. <laughs> you have to answer the questions lightning quick. Okay. What happens if I don't do it? Is there a penalty? Yeah, there's a 100,000 yen penalty for each question. Oh, you can ask oh my gosh. To your favorite charity. <laughs> okay. All right, so what book or books have greatly influenced your life? There have been a lot. I mean, I read investment books. I read um, fiction, philosophical books. Um, the Alchemist by Paulo 
Quail Ho is very interesting. It's, um, that was a very helpful book. It's a book on living and deal-making. Every kind of deal is described in that book and an attitude toward life is described in that book. I think that's a great book to, for entrepreneurs and just for life in general. Yeah, I actually picked that one up off a recommendation and read that one this year. Yeah, very good book. It's a quick read and definitely some fables and life lessons in that one. But yeah, very yeah. good one. Yeah. And and from a deal point of view, every type of deal is described in there. Yes. The success yeah. fee, the fee for work, pay before, pay after, everything's described. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of like, I mean, he, he kind of had the same attitude you described. He didn't really know you know, how he's going to go about doing these things, but he just set off to do them, right? Right. And fig figured it out. Right. That's Excellent. Right. So, all right, next one. How has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Uh, a failure or perceived failure allowed? I guess the hotel deal would be good for that. Um because I learned so much. I mean, we, we bought into something. It was much more work than thought it would be. It didn't turn out. The end game wasn't anything like I thought it would be, but we made money and I learned a tremendous amount, so. Okay. And have you, have you done any hotel deals since then? Uh, no. No, I haven't. Any plans to here or in the U.S. if the opportunity arises? If the opportunity arises, and we, we looked at one, there was one, it was a distressed deal about two years ago uh, that we made an offer on, but wasn't received or wasn't accepted. So I think uh, hotel properties are really suffering now. So yeah. if the right opportunity came along, sure. I mean, there'll be, there'll be demand for hotels. All right, good. All right, so if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Uh, I guess I'd list the vacant properties and say release. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, that's definitely... That's definitely life altering. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what is a habit or a peculiar routine that you love? Habit or routine? I don't know. I exercise in the morning. Like to get that over with early. Um, How early? First thing when I get up. So, four, five, six, whenever it is. Uh, get up, go out, exercise, and start the day that way. Okay. And in the last five years, you're going to hear me say that a couple of times, last five years. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? In the last five years has improved my life. I don't know what's changed in the last five years so much. It's, uh, I think the big changes took place farther a long ago. I mean, I, I, I have having a child is is life changing. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, now once my son left home and we had the empty nest, that was kind of life changing. Go back to living as a couple with my wife and dealing with an adult child. I guess, you know, that's a big change. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what advice would you give to a smart driven investor about to looking to invest with someone raising capital for an M&A or acquisition or a multifamily real estate venture? What advice would you give to them? I look at the counterparties. The counterparties are more important. I mean, the asset's important, but the counterparties are equally important. So um, know your counterparty really well. I think that's the, the biggest lesson I've taken away over the years. Okay. Okay, very good. And what, what are bad recommendations you hear in your day-to-day for people new to investing or entrepreneurship? Oh, I guess, I don't know if there's bad recommendations because, I, you know, I don't know. There's a, I think the idea that it can be outsourced to somebody, I think if you have money to invest, that it's a responsibility to learn how to deal, it, deal with it yourself. Um, I think the idea of abdicate, abdicating the role or leaving it to someone else is is the bad advice. Uh, no matter what it is, I think I think personal responsibility really matters, particularly when it comes to your own managing your own assets. It, it, it's buyer beware, and uh, the individual has to learn for himself. Okay. All right, very good. So here comes another in the last five years again. So in the last five years, what have you come, what have you become better at saying no to? And I'll, pre- I'll, preface <laughs> I'll preface this and say Ray is very good at saying no to things. I can attest to that. So, <laughs> I guess I'm just better at saying no to everything. Um, I would have. I have. So I would sometimes not take my my own previous advice, and I would defer. It's like, well, maybe I'm not so sure. Maybe I'll listen to so and so. And I think in the last five years of just going more and more on my own uh, analysis and my own opinions. Okay. And what, why is, why do you think you want to say, why do you think you say no to, I'm sure it's not everything, but a lot of things. Why do you think you say no to so much? Well, there's so many things. It's hard to, you have to focus. I think it's, um, there, there's sort of, it's hard to do everything. Uh, I have to pick the things I can do. So it's a question of setting priorities. I like to say I don't want to commit to things I can't follow through on. I don't want to make promises to people that I can't follow up on. So I like to set low expectations so that I can meet them or exceed them uh, with people. Okay. I don't want to waste anyone else's time um, any more than I'd waste my own. Okay, good. Yeah, I guess is. I mean, with the technology today, I mean, it's so easy to, it's so easy for people to approach you, especially with deals. I mean, I can imagine you probably get, you know, deal after deal after deal in your email box. So to just decipher through those, it's almost like you need to say no to, no to most of them or almost everything. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, you're doing pretty good, right? So last one. Okay. When you're feeling overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? Overwhelmed or unfocused. I either go to sleep or I go outdoors. So if it's late in the day and I'm tired, I'll just I'll just lie down and close my eyes and and rest. And um, if it's if I'm not tired, if I'm just preoccupied, I, I go outdoors and go for a jog or a bike ride or something. Um, I usually think get a lot of ideas while I'm, when I'm out on my morning jog. Okay, and do you do you meditate, Ray? I don't specifically meditate, uh, but I, you know, when I do something like yoga or go for a jog, it's, it's got its meditative aspects, but I don't specifically sit and, and meditate. I, I don't approach it in that traditional sense. Okay. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I mean, jogging can definitely be medicinal. I get some of my best thoughts and ideas jogging as well, so. Yeah. All right, very good. You made it through, Ray, with um, all your money intact. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so before we hop off, Ray, if, um, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you or learn more about you or collaborate with you, what's the best way they could go about? I guess send me an email or send you an email and then you filter. <laughs> okay. All right, so yeah, I'll post your email on the... Um, on the oh, don't post under... my email. Don't, don't post my email. You. Okay, you I'll... They can just contact me and I'll I'll do an introduction yeah. and we'll do that way. Yeah, yeah, that's better. All right, excellent. All right, Rachel, thanks so much for um, spending some time with us today. I really enjoyed it and I'm sure the um, listeners got a lot of value out of that. So thanks so much. All right, well, thanks for asking. All right, likewise, and I'll be talking to you soon, I'm sure. Okay, thank you. All right, take care, buddy. Have a good one. Okay, you too, bye-bye. All right, bye. There you have it, guys another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.